Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Delighted right now to welcome the Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, who's on the line. Good morning to you. Great to join you, Julie. Lovely to you? speak. Very well indeed. Lovely to talk to you. Let's talk about so what you're announcing today, this £500 million funding for a new quick result COVID test. These are trials that are going to go uh, across uh, for in launch in Salford. Existing pilots expanded in Southampton and Ham- Hampshire. Um, is this the game changer test that we keep being told we're finally going to get? Well, this is a new testing technology that will allow us to expand testing much more. Uh, you know, over the past six months, we've done uh, an enormous amount to expand testing capacity to what we've got based on the current technology where you have to have the swab down the back of your throat, send it off to uh, the lab, and you get the result normally within uh, 24 hours. The new technologies, they can, they bring the, they can bring the lab to you. Uh, you can the turnaround can be uh, an hour and a half or in one case 20 minutes it just expands the amount of where you can do tests it makes it much easier to get access to them and and so it's not just about finding the virus which is really important but it's also about being able to do a test to check your negative because then you can have more confidence in going about your normal business. So it's, a, it's, an, it's about enabling people to get on with their normal lives, as well as, of course, the vital, vital job of suppressing the virus. OK, so if this test works, if we're sure it can work and we can roll it out, and it's quick and it's cheap and, and we can have mass testing in the community, how quickly before we can have this routinely, um, you know, at schools, in the workplace, um, just community yeah. testing, yeah. and indeed at yeah. airports, crucially, and we'll come on to that yeah. in just a few moments. Well, let's, let's do that. It, it, I'm not putting a deadline on it. Weeks and months is what I'm saying. Um, The reason is we've got all these different technologies, 100 of them that we're working with. Um, We're reliant on the scientists, on the technology working, and then getting them into mass manufacture. Uh, we've, We've trialed a whole series of them. We're expanding those today. So essentially, it starts today and rolls out across the country over the weeks and months to come. Okay, the question is how many months? We keep being told we should be worried about a second wave this winter. It's not much use to us if it happens next spring, is it? Well, that, that, look, it, it, you and me both, Julia, you and me both. We've, I, what, I'm, I, what I can assure you is I am pushing this as fast as is humanly possible. What I can't do is put a date on it because we've got to get these things working. We've got to get them, three of them, as I say, are working, but we're working with a 100 others. Um, and we've got to get them into mass manufacture. 
and we've got to make the ho the whole system work. Okay. Uh, but I am confident enough to put half a billion pounds into it and to uh, start talking about how this can help free up all the things that we love. Um, let me put to you a, a tweet that Keir, Sir Keir Starmer, the uh, Labour leader, tweeted yesterday. Um, Boris Johnson and his government has lurched from crisis to crisis and U-turn to U-turn to correct one error, even two. Might make sense. But when they've notched up 12 U-turns and rising, the only conclusion is serial incompetence. What would you say to that? Is this government serially incompetent? Well, I think what people want to see is everybody working together to solve this national problem. Uh, not political sniping from the sidelines. So I don't think that will do Keir any good at all. Um, he'd be far better to be trying to help solve the problems. Now, of course, in a in a pandemic, uh, things change. You know, we're learning more about the virus. We also see spikes in cases, for instance, as we saw in Bolton over the last few days and had to that was going to come out of lockdown. It couldn't because of this spike in cases. You know, Keir Starmer might call that a U-turn. I call that following the data and keeping people safe. And so I'm absolutely unapologetic about the fact that we'll, 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 we'll look at all of the data. And if things change, like with quarantine arrangements as well, we will move swiftly and decisively. And people shouldn't play politics with that. Look, I think a lot of people listening will agree with you. There's a difference between a U-turn over, say, you know, algorithms for exams or, or the like, and, and changing policy on a lockdown or on quarantine. There was an issue uh, with uh, what happened with the local lockdown in the Greater Manchester area, though, where local authorities, local councils, local MPs, even the Greater Manchester Mayor, Andy Byrne, were saying, look, they were appealing to the government. No, no, don't lift the lockdown. We're seeing a rise in cases. And, uh, and we had that sort of, are we, aren't we in and out moment for about 12 hours in the local area. Lots of confusion for people. Again and again, the issue seems to be the failure to communicate clearly, give a clear message from the government. Is that something that the government's going to try and get on top of at some point? Well, uh, I think in the case that you just set out, that's totally unreasonable. And, uh, you know, Andy Burnham, frankly, um, should concentrate, uh, like me, on helping to stop the problem uh, that and the cases in Greater Manchester. In the case of Bolton, which you mentioned, uh, yes, the council, like me, thought that the, we could take them out of local lockdown. They had 17 cases per 100,000 people, which is below the rate at which we have people in lockdown. We took that decision and announced it. It was due to come into force yesterday. And then the number of cases, unfortunately, has shot up. It's now one of the highest places in the country. And as a result, I took the decision yesterday not to bring it out of local lockdown. You know, let's look at the substance of, the, of what's happening with the virus. Let's look at the data. Let's make sure we listen objectively to what the data is telling us and do everything we can to control the virus. So I was absolutely clear. I know that there were, I know that there were noises off, but I think people who are in positions of responsibility should be working together to solve this problem and to try to keep people safe. Isn't one of the big issues, though, is that the test and trace system isn't working adequately enough yet that no, we're able to... No, that's well, wrong. That's well, no, wrong. Let me, let me, date, let me finish the question, because we know that some people, are when they're going online, they're being sent to a, a testing centre that's 100 or more miles away instead of a local testing centre. Even even with what's been happening in Bolton, we've just been speaking to the local MP, saying they still don't know why this, uh, this has spread. They've not been able to track down. Possibly someone who arrived from Spain, didn't quarantine, had the virus, went on a pub call. But they don't know. I mean, 
But isn't the important point about the test and trace is that we are supposed to be able to not just identify quickly, but identify the root cause and, yes. and therefore stop it from spreading. Yes. But clearly that hasn't happened in this case. Well, uh, well, you've just you've just set out in the question some of the things that have been discovered from the contact tracing system. Uh, and uh, we know far more about that outbreak uh, than we have any previous outbreak because of the success of the contact tracing system. Not only finding people who, who people who are positive might infect, but also going back and trying to find where people caught it. Uh, and we know it, it's actually a really good example of where we know more than we ever have before because of the system. Now, we can always improve it, okay? It, it, at the moment, we find 84% of the contacts where the contact details are given. And obviously, I want that figure higher. It is well above many other comparator systems around the world. Uh, and I'm really pleased with the progress that we've been able to make on it. Um, the testing, as you say, there are, of course, there's operational uh, challenges in a massive system like this. But the vast majority of people can get their test close to them or at home and then get the result uh, within 24 hours, get it the next day. And, and, and that's the system that we need. Of course, I'll constantly, constantly strive to uh, make it work across the board. But I'm really glad that there's increasing recognition that our test and trace system is working effectively, uh, that our, that, and testing is widely available to anybody who has symptoms. There's a critical message to all of your listeners. If you have symptoms, get a test. Uh, and um, and then and then we'll keep improving it. Yeah, but but of course, as you well know, the vast majority of people who do have coronavirus don't have any symptoms, particularly young people. Uh, your yes. predecessor, Jeremy Hunt, as health secretary now, uh, chair of the Health Select Committee, he suggested yesterday that we should have uh, testing every week in secondary schools, particularly for teachers. Is that something you'd like to move towards? Well, uh, when we have a mass testing system available with the sorts of new technologies that we're supporting with the extra money that we're uh, putting in, we can look at those sorts of things. Uh, but uh, at, the, uh, at the moment, with the testing capacity that we have, the critical thing is to get into the areas where there's outbreaks and to uh, ensure that everybody who has symptoms can get a test because schools are... Uh, safe. I'm really, really pleased that uh, that schools are going back right across the board. You and me both. Uh, right I'm a parent. <laughs> I know. I know. I have I have three children, and um, it, it, you know, for every parent, uh, uh, but most importantly, actually, for the children. So that is going that is going well, um, and um, uh, and I'm I'm really pleased that uh, the return of the schools has been okay. so far so good. Do you think there's a big problem though, trying to get the schools back, which does look like it's being largely a success, um, and getting people back to work in their workplaces, not yeah. a success so far, that a lot of this is very difficult to do when the government is warning, and you've done this quite a lot lately, talking about the, 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 the risk of a second wave. There are many very eminent people in the virology uh, field and in many other uh, medical fields who really know a lot more about this, and I think both you and I would would have, in, in terms of our medical knowledge, who say, you know, we are not in a second wave. There's no evidence of a second wave. We're seeing a rise in infections, but that's simply because we're testing a lot more people. Largely, it's young people. They're not having any symptoms. They're not getting ill. Virtually zero risk of dying. Yeah. And we need to stop scaremongering well, about this. So I, I, I love this question, Julia. I love this question because you've just asked me um, about our test and trace system and you uh, repeated uh, the accusation that it isn't working. And then I didn't you say it isn't Hold working. On. Hold on. And then you explained, then you explained that unlike France, Spain, many other parts of the world, America, Brazil, India, 
we are not seeing a second wave. And it's true, the, the number of infections here are broadly flat. Yep. The second wave is coming across Europe. And a combination of people doing social distancing, our quarantine policy, our test and trace policy and our local lockdowns mean that we are not at this moment seeing a second but wave here. But it's not here. a second wave in Europe either. It's, it is just well, a continuation. We're simply is. testing more yeah. people. There is no increase in hospitalizations or in deaths. Yeah, a is, no, no, a tiny, tiny little increase uh, in no. Spain, which is which a lot of people think may be a statistical blip. Not in France, not in any of the other countries that have seen this increase in infection rates. Yeah. OK, well, that that argument, I, I just I, I wish were true, but sadly it's not. So all, the, um, all the, those all, you know, so people like Carl Hennigan, who, who's a very eminent yeah. uh, figure in this field uh, at yeah. Oxford University, he's wrong. Yeah, he's uh, wrong. Uh, well, Are you uh, saying Carl uh, Hennigan's wrong? Because he's uh, he's the one who uh, pointed out that Public Health England didn't know how to count how many people died of Covid. And he's been pretty right before. I haven't uh, seen his comments on this, but what I have seen is the data. And unfortunately, hospitalizations are rising in France and also in America. A couple of months ago, when their second wave started in a big way, we saw this rise in the first instance among young people. And, and there was this argument, well, don't worry, it's only young people. By the way, young people can get long COVID and debilitating long term impacts, um, but are much, much less likely to die. The, the vast say. majority However, of people who are young who get coronavirus have no symptoms whatsoever or very let, mild symptoms. Come you on, you know finish, that. If you let me finish the answer. However, unfortunately... Um, they uh, unfortunately, we've then seen in all the countries where this has happened, the virus then spread to older people, um, and because it because it naturally does, especially through families. Okay. So, I, so, so I'm afraid um, you've got to look at the experience of where people have seen a rise like this, and you, it unfortunately, it does then lead to okay. older people dying. But the, but there's a broader point, which is that in the UK. Thus far, we have not seen a second peak, and that is in part due to the huge efforts people have gone to on social distancing, the success of NHS test and trace and of local lockdowns. But we want to go further and, and hence all this uh, uh, big, big uh, step forward on testing that we're, a, we're able okay. to announce Just today. finally, I know you have to go and time's against us, but just finally, we're having people being quarantined coming from various countries. We may see a change in, in other countries, Greece, um, possibly more Portugal, uh, people expect going back on the list. What's the point of us quarantining people who are travelling legally between countries uh, when we've got 409 migrants arriving on boats across the channel? Well, we need to sort that as well. Uh, and we need to stop people uh, coming. There's absolutely no reason to come over from France uh, if you're uh, uh, illegally. Um, there's no reason at all. France is a perfectly civilised country. And then if people do come here, we need to make sure that they're returned so that we stop the, the, these, these okay. criminal gangs from trafficking people over the channel. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Right now, though, let's talk about going green and being green. If you've got a child at school right now, you probably have been given a little bit of a talking to about whether or not you're environmentally sound or not. Are you actually, uh, uh, you know, actually putting the right things in the right bins and doing the right thing? Well, 70 percent of parents say they have been given a talking to about their environmental habits from kids. And nine in 10 parents say their children have a good understanding of the environment. Well, joining us to discuss this study is a former Blue Peter presenter and, of course, now an author, Connie Huck. Good morning to you. Hello, Julia. Hello. Love, lovely to speak to you. Now, you, you're working uh, along with, uh, with Noah's Ark. That's a Jurassic Park-style domed city being built to protect <laughs> the world's uh, wildlife and ecology, which sounds right up my family's strasser uh, uh, as, as a day out. But they carried out this study just to sort of, you know, about the, so, what kids know about uh, the, uh, the, the environmentalism and what parents know. Kids are getting their knowledge from telly, apparently, and they're basically telling their, their, their parents off if they're not doing the right thing. Yeah, 41% of kids have got their knowledge from the telly. You know, Julia, I really feel that times have changed from when we were growing up because nowadays um, often you have busy parents or both parents are working. Um, Households have multiple TV screens, don't they? And also kids are growing up surrounded by a climate emergency, whereas when we were growing up, essentially, it wasn't so high up the pecking order of priorities in mainstream media, which means a lot of my peers are not as well versed on it as kids of today you see the Greta Thunbergs and the climate campaigners and often it's our youngsters that are educating us like you said and it mm. this is the thing you see 
I'm going to disagree with you on virtually everything there. Quite apart from that, oh, I'm no. probably a much much older generation than you, as people who can watch no, I, on video can no, testify. But this is this is the thing. Okay, I, I, you know, climate change. Yeah, okay, climate is changing. Absolutely, except that whether or not it's an emergency, whether we have to catastrophize it is another thing at all. Mm. What I find from young kids, and I've got a very bright kid with a lot of very bright friends, all sort of straight A students. When you actually ask them for some facts about the environment and about uh, climate change and and what is happening, whether you know, you know, I don't know whether. It's wildfires or, or you know, Antarctica or what? Any facts? They don't know anything. That they go on telly when there's a, a day, to, you know, day off school. When Greta Thunberg <laughs> tells them to go off uh, for a day off school and march at Westminster. Yeah. But you actually ask them for some facts. They don't know anything. So we say they're environmentally aware, but 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 they've just made all this stuff up. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about even the actual facts that everyone accepts as the case, like what percentage of the you know of the environment. Yeah, yeah. They don't know anything. So they think they're aware, but they don't know anything. I'm going to partially agree with you mm. on this subject of not knowing actual facts because I do also think we live in such frenetic times there's so much sort of information bombarded I'm probably guilty as well in that things don't people don't retain information in the same way they sort of carry their phones about and it's like an extension of your brain so you feel like you know I remember growing up I used to remember everyone's phone numbers like all the <laughs> yes. digits and now I just think oh I don't need to know that I don't need to know that. I don't but know I my own husband's like, mobile number for goodness yeah, sake <laughs> it's really funny because we've got these hard drives which are essentially our brain that we carry about with us so people are very scant on facts and figures in general on loads of things but also I find there's so much information bombarding you know I'm the worst for watching a series or a box set or a film and I won't even remember the names of the characters the next week I'll be you know that thing we saw sometimes I don't even remember the title yeah. um I'm, so no, I'm totally do... with you on there so you're saying that they, they've been given the information they've had a, a thought yeah. on it and then they're just forgetting the facts well what's interesting is parents apparently saying they want um, their, their children to get more education about green issues they say almost half want environmental studies to be part of the curriculum uh, which I think is very interesting because I have to say I I, I can't find a subject where, at my daughter's school where they don't bring in the green green issues it's it's all yeah, over I, the curriculum no I, I absolutely agree that kids seem so much more well versed on this than us um we found that a lot of parents want more immersive sort of teaching and i think what that sort of is broken down to or stems from is that when we were growing up and i know you say we're different eras but i am a lot older uh, than, <laughs> than I, but I i remember and you might be the same julia that it would come to the summer holidays or something and we'd be out on our bikes, yeah. the kids from the neighbourhood, me and my sisters, and we'd be romping around, you know, making insect houses and picking blackberries and, you know, getting down and dirty in the mud. And now a days, you know, there's a, a fear sort of, I don't know, your kids might be kidnapped or whatever. There's much less of a sort of interaction with the undergrowth as yeah. it were. And I think when people hear that, oh, I don't know, in extinction is happening or species are dying out, you associate that with the, uh, the Amazon rainforests or the, I don't know, the polar ice caps melting, but it's happening on our doorstep with, you know, hedgehogs, red squirrels, you know, the Natterjack toad, there's loads of um, sort of animals in the UK that are on the brink. And I think parents, uh, the survey found that parents would like sort of schools to do a bit more outward boundy stuff. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. Talk Radio.
my next guest, um, who is uh, well taking us uh, rather away from the future and everything being online and streamed and Netflixed and the like, and taking us back almost, well, 600 years by writing a novel in longhand. Comedy writer and director Andy Hamilton, who you'll know from pretty much every single panel show on the BBC Channel 4, but also, of course, the creator of the utterly, utterly brilliant Outnumbered. Uh, Andy Hamilton joins us now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Um, Absolute pleasure to speak to you. I've had the pleasure of working with you a few times on uh, some comedy shows, and it's always uh, an absolute pleasure. But... um, and I, I remember being aware that, that you were someone who didn't like using a mobile phone, no mobile phone. You're very much anti a lot of all this technology. And if people want to reach you, they'll have to just call you on the landline at home. Um, you also still write on a typewriter normally rather than uh, uh, using a computer. But now you've gone even further and you've published a 349 page novel written entirely by hand. Yeah, no, I've, I've never used the typewriter. Oh, typewriter, I thought you did. No, my typing speed never got up to I've always, every script I've ever written for radio, TV, books, whatever, it's always been, it always starts out in a longhand version. Um, so it always lives in handwriting first and then gets given to someone to type. And and I've thought for decades about trying to publish uh, a novel in handwriting. And then I had this, what I thought was a cracking idea for a story that felt like it should take the form of a handwritten letter. So I thought, well, maybe why not get it published if I can in handwriting as well? So then it was just a question of finding a, a publisher mad enough to say yes. <laughs> and, and we did in, a, in Unbound. So, um, so yeah, so it's, it's, it's a novel. It's a, you know, it's an exciting story. It's a man telling his life story in a, in a long letter to a, a partner he has to abandon to keep her safe. Um, but, yeah, so it's uh, it's a bit of a throwback. I mean, I'm not anti all these technologies. It's just that I, I sort of prefer not to just Just not for you. I mean, it's, yeah. it took you two years and you went through 43 pens doing this. Well, yeah. Are you still, I mean, are you in fountain pens or have you at least gone with rollable technology? No. I was using pens, which I think have been discontinued. They're Beryl. They're those green. I remember those. Pens. Yes. Yeah. They're not. I mean, you know, I write in a kind of, you know, um, pretty consistent, legible italics, but it's not proper calligraphy. You know, yeah. it's not like um, uh, um, that sort of very um, ornate calligraphy. It's just uh, uh, it's a style of handwriting that that evolved and I think I copied my brother. My brother was a draftsman and he was seven years older than me and I remember seeing his handwriting and thinking, oh, that looks good. I think I'll copy it. It's, it's really interesting. My, my daughter's got fantastic uh, handwriting style and, and does a lot of calligraphy. And, and again, she just sort of every couple of weeks just changes it and just tries something new. I have appalling handwriting that's virtually impossible to read and got a lot worse when I learned longhand when I went to journalism college, which means I, I randomly forget lots of vowels because you don't really use vowels right. much in longhand. Have you ever thought of just learning, at least if you're not going to be on a typewriter or a computer or anything, that you've actually just thought, at least I'll learn shorthand so I can write more quickly? Or do you feel that would take away from your ability to to express yourself there's something there's something weird and organic happens in the physical action of writing with me and i can't quite put my finger on it and quite often when i when a script is typed up and it comes back uh, and i look at it and i think well you know yeah that's that's okay i'm quite pleased with that but it always feels one stage distant from me you know so 
it's I feel a more intimate connection with the the stuff I've actually written on the page. Yeah, I know what you mean. And even for me, and I, I always wonder, is it just my age? So I didn't grow up with technology. Mobile phones were my late 20s onwards. That um, that, that actually, I, I if I write something in longhand, it goes into my head. I can remember from you, revising for exams. The act right. of writing it puts it somehow in my brain. Typing it doesn't. Yeah, but I suspect that's a generational thing, isn't it? Because, um, you know, we grew up still doing Yeah handwriting and, and letters and, and um, I mean now you know people are very excited if they get a handwritten letter yes. now because of the rarity value you know but um, so I, I think uh, the more you know this generation will think digitally and that's fair enough that's entirely that's the world they've been born into but um, I just thought that maybe now was a moment where where an idea like this would have some potency because possibly we are waving goodbye to handwriting um, as a form, um, so I thought I'd, I'd, I'd just you yeah. know. I, I, a, I yeah. agree with you. I, I really worry because the thing is, you know, I still send Christmas cards, um, and you know, the handwritten in there, and and birthday cards. And whenever I now and then I get a birthday card, and the member of my family who always forgets to do a birthday card and does it online on the day, yeah, you know who you are. Um, <laughs> and and it's not the same. It's someone bothering to sort of buy something, but also to write in it. I mean, better still, I have made card, but a letter, a note, something that's written um, by someone's hand does feel so much more personal than. Yeah. Yeah. Even much more fulsome prose typed out. And maybe a bit more careful. You sometimes get the impression that possibly a bit more thought's gone into it, you know, because because a letter, you know, you've got to find the paper, you've got to write it out, yeah. you've got to find the envelope, you've got to get a stamp, you've got to post it. It is more of a an action, isn't it? Whereas an email, you know, can be dashed off. Yeah. in 10 seconds with lots of spelling mistakes. Well, you you didn't dash this off. Two years and 43 pens. It's called Longhand and it's, it just sounds absolutely beautiful. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.